Hello strangers and welcome to Strangers in a Cinema episode 17. Episode 17. Hello strangers indeed. So you've taken the lead in off of me because I forgot to do it last time, haven't you really? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> even as I said it, I didn't feel like it necessarily had the uh, the ability to catch on like wildfire in the community and, and become a new thing. But we're going to attempt to make it a thing anyway. So again, I reiterate, hello strangers. Um, welcome Hello back. strangers. Yes, indeed. I am Pete. That is Paul. We are here to record another of our little podcasts, um, following on from the last one, number 16, which we, uh, to all accounts, I think has been a pretty big success and we're happy with it. Uh, following on from a great episode with James Weber, we had the episode with uh, Mark Brennan and Carl Austin from Porkchop Pictures, which if you've had the chance to catch up with that one, uh, they talked about T for Two, new short film that's coming out. We're excited about it. We're still looking for, for further details. You've seen it, actually. I have seen it, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. so we'll have more on that, I think, in the in the near future. We because... will have more on that in the near future. I think we'll, we'll both watch it and then we'll probably do a discussion point on that to see, to see what we thought. Uh, but we're on our own again today. We're, we're not... We haven't gone on tour. We're back in. We're back in Cheltenham on yeah. our own in uh, the strangest, strangest studio. <laughs> the strangest studio is is fairly cluttered with uh, just myriads of Paul's DVDs today, which seem to have like developed a life of their own and <laughs> crawled across the carpet. So we're in this kind well, of. Well, I um, do. I do feel the need to come back at you on that one because um, cluttered would be a, a polite statement for the state of the strangest studio. I mean, what I've been trying to do is is have a clear out right. and save some space because I've mainly gone over to Blu-ray now and. I keep finding films going, I'll trade that in, and then I don't want to trade that in. Then I realise it's American, so I can't get rid of it. What's that one there? The nearest one to us? Harold's Going Stiff. Harold's Going Stiff. Tell Harold's me about Harold's Going Stiff. Going stiff. What the a, hell is this? Harold's Going Stiff is a fantastic uh, British comedy horror. Okay. I know the director will slam me for uh, for talking about it as a comedy horror. I've completely forgotten the director's name. Don't He's worry a guy that I met at Red Carpet, actually. There's Google now. That but, um, gets your no, Harold's Going Stiff, actually, comes comes highly, highly recommended. Yeah, um, as a very entertaining. Well, I was talking to you earlier about. Film. I was talking to you earlier about, um, briefly anyway, about Housebound, which I saw recently, a New Zealand uh, horror comedy, which I highly recommend. We're not going to do a review of Housebound today because Paul's going to catch up with it. I know it's like right in his wheelhouse. So when he's had a chance to see that, we'll talk about it. And there's probably a. And few... in fact, I will allow you to leave with Harold's going stiff on loan. Oh so... hell. Oh hell, look at that. That's just played out here. That's happened. That's on the air now, so we can't renege on that deal because I'm taking that home. So anyway, to get to some sort of semblance of a point for today's episode, what we're going to do, as per usual, is we're going to hit up a couple of feature-length reviews, first of all. Yeah, I said hit up. What? I'm hip-hop now. (laughs) Um, We're going to get to a couple of feature reviews, first of all. Those, um, maybe somewhat predictably, I don't know if you are familiar with our at this point are going to be uh, Mad Max Fury Road which is a giant current release at the cinema and we've both seen that and we've got lots to say about it then we're going to get to Far From the Madding Crowd which is a, a big very, contrast it's a very, really, it's a very isn't different it? film to Mad Max yeah and, and a film that though I would say I was probably equally excited about having read the book as a teenager and for particular reasons, which I'll get to later on, really made a big impact on me. So Thomas Vinterberg being involved as well, you know, fires up the likes of uh, myself and Paul for a film like yeah. Far From Money Crowd. So um, without further ado, Paul... Well, going back to what you're saying, it's, oh, inter- yeah, do. it's, it's interesting the, the juxtaposition of the films, because I haven't read Far From the Madding Crowd. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't think you're that familiar with the early Mad Max films. No, you're, you're absolutely right, man. So we, we come at these two films, one of us with some background, or, or greater background, and the other one with, with less so. And I think that would probably help us to sort of let, help each other out a bit in terms of knowledge and, and know-how about what came before. First of all, though, it's got to be the, the booming adventure 
that was and is Mad Max Fury Road. Paul, if you come at this with the setup because you've got, like we mentioned, a bit of a background with Mad Max and, and the saga. Okay, so you've got everyone's aware of the Mad Max films. You've got the first film. I forget the dates now, which is rare for me that I forget dates. But I believe late late seventies for the first Mad Max for the first Mad Max film. Very different films to sequels that followed it. Neither of the strangers were born, though, were they, Paul? No, neither of us were born because we were no. such young bucks that we weren't <laughs> around when that thing first first came out. So Mad Max is is a very the original is a very different film to its sequels. It's a very powerful, almost gritty drama, really about kind of just a man on the edge and bad shit happens to and ve- him. And very low budget. Like, very low budget. Well, it's essentially, for want of a, to, to coin a phrase, it's kind of an early Ausploitation film. Right. Um, I think you can work out that Ausploitation films is perhaps Australian exploitation films. Right. So exploiting the, the tropes of being an Australian, living in Australia, the tough environment in the outback in Australia, I would imagine, in the Ausploitation yeah. genre. And then, obviously, you had uh, Mad Max 2 released in the US as Road Warrior because I believe that Mad Max hadn't done well enough. Uh, so then it was eventually retitled to Mad Max 2. And Mad Max 2 is probably the best reference point for Fury Road out of the three Mad Max films I can think of. It's essentially... It's a it's a long action scene, essentially. Then you had uh, Beyond Thunderdome, which is a bag of shit. Which brings us to... <laughs> I like that I like that review. If, if you just had this as a feature, you'd be right. Today, guys, we're, we're going to cover... Uh, Thund- is it just called Thunderdome? Beyond Thunderdome. Beyond Thunderdome, excuse me. Yeah, so you have, today we're going to review Beyond Thunderdome in the uh, Mad Max at that point trilogy. And we just go, Paul, you've got the most background on this. Give us your lowdown. <laughs> it's a bag of it's shit. It's a bag of shit. Right, what's misses, next? So Thunderdome completely misses the point of the first two Mad Max films. It right. makes him too much of a nice character. It panders too. It panders too much to the studio. Is the first time Miller's George Miller's obviously got a huge budget to do Mad Max, which is ultimately why I was a bit nervous about Fury Road, even despite the trailer right. looking awesome. Now, having seen Fury Road, I absolutely loved it. I just think, as in terms of in terms of nailing Mad Max, it's nice to see George Miller working well with the budget, completely capturing the insane spirit of the first two films, and also to recast. The original villain Toe Cutter from Mad Max as the main villain in this was a stroke of genius. Whoa, now Paul, you're going deep. You're connecting with those hardcore Mad Max fans. Just pull it back for a second. Put that, uh, what would we call it in Mad Max? Like one of their vehicles. Put that into reverse in the desert. Just back it up a little <laughs> bit. You, you've mentioned here uh, the three films that have come before. How, you said the closest comparison with this one was the second was Mad, the second Max, Mad Max, Max movie. Film. Right. So what what exactly is the setup here? What's the situation that we're coming into when we open up Mad Max Fury Road, the latest iteration of this thing? When we open up Mad Max Fury Road, no longer got Mel Gibson as Max. We've got Tom Hardy. I, I think of all the actors out there working at the moment, he's probably the most suitable choice of casting. The man's a brute mm. and he captures the physicality of Mad Max perfectly. In terms of how, how close it is to the second film? or Well, I mean, kind of the situation that you come into, because, yeah, we're introduced to the Mad Max character, but for anyone who's uninitiated, what the hell is okay, going so on here? Basically, the film opens post-apocalyptic wasteland. Um, the remnants of human society have all turned on each other. Uh, and Max is just one of the one of the few survivors. Just and you're not really given much context in the in the setup of the film. Yeah, Max in the desert goes to drive off, gets captured, shit hits the fan. There's not yeah. much more context given than that. There's not much more needed. Yeah, it slightly helps having seen the um, the previous films, but I, you'll be able to say whether it spoils your enjoyment of it or not. I don't think it particularly does because it is kind of set up in in flashbacks within his head. The girl that flashes up in the 
in the film is his daughter from the first film. It kind of helps mm. to know that, adds a little bit more context to that role. But from that point onwards, it's balls to the wall, absolutely visceral and thoroughly gripping action scenes with not a great deal else going on, not a great yeah. deal of story there, admittedly. Right, so yeah, you're absolutely right to say it's a really efficient setup, isn't it? Visually very efficient as well. A limited number of scenes used to get us to the point where we know, okay, this character is Mad Max, he's played by Tom Hardy, he's in peril. And he needs maybe to find a way out of his current predicament. This is basically the setup. When we are then introduced to another significant player in this thing, which is the character of Furiosa, played pretty fantastically, I think, Superbly, by, I think, by Charlize Theron. And Charlize Theron here is a part of the group, or is at least embroiled in the group, which is holding Tom Hardy's character, Mad Max, um, and then makes a break, it's fair to say, for freedom from that group um, with a truck which she is supposed to be like dropping off right she's really dropping off like a like a fuel dump a trade or, or something yep. like that in the the canyon uh, yep. I think um, and decides to take a left turn um, turn off the given path and try to break for freedom with a group of women young women who are the wives I think they're labelled in the film yeah. the, the people who are able to bear children for the uh, patriarch of the, the group from which the they're yeah, from, from which they're breaking and um, that is basically the dynamic that you've got in Mad Max as far as plotting goes as you say it's it's thin but that isn't going to be as well explained really a criticism of the film I don't think no and it's it's weird because someone someone called me on this the other day when they'd obviously heard me talk about Avengers and me bemoan the fact that the film didn't have any story and I got a little bit frustrated by that criticism. I can understand why people were throwing it at me, and I'm aware that Mad Max doesn't have a story, but the, the key difference is here, Mad Max doesn't need a story. Hmm. Uh, it's not one of those films, and it's not from a series of films that have a strong story, whereas the Avengers films were. They've had they've, Story has been a big part of the Avengers films. That's why I thought Age of Ultron was lacking. That's why I don't think... I think the, the same criticism can't be levelled at Mad Max Fury Road for not having a story, because it harnesses so well the feel of, the feel of especially the, the second film, which again was almost, for want of a better word, a, a long action scene. But yeah, and a little bit like something like Cormac McCarthy's novel The Road. This is about desperation and desolation and trying to get something when there is apparently nothing, right? Like, yeah. I know it's not a, not a direct comparison, maybe, that can be made between the two things, but I think if you watched um, John Hillcoat's film The Road, mm. which is the adaptation of that novel, then you would see some similarities in the fact that it is people on a journey trying to survive and well, that's what Mad you, Max I think is the, about the first Mad Max probably t there's a lot of that in the in, in the first Mad Max film as well um, but I think where, why Fury Road is, is so successful in in my book is the fact that unlike a lot of other genre re sort of uh, franchise reboots or reimaginings and this is kind of you could argue it fits into that category it's kind of a sequel kind of a reboot obviously there's new cast in it but I think where Fury Road worked for me so well and this is why I, I absolutely loved the film is because it's it's so nice to see someone revisiting an old, an old franchise and not changing what worked there's no mm. there's no compromise there there's no compromise for like, oh if well you know we tried to change Mad Max because we didn't think people liked Mad Max too or we tried to change it for this reason we tried to change it for that reason George Miller's just gone essentially gone fuck you this is Mad Max. Yeah, and I mean, we've done a sort of preamble, we've got some idea of the plot, we've got some idea of where we are, but let's just, like, take off the shackles for a second and say, like, this thing is, th like, thrilling, right? This is, as a cinema experience, and something that we'll talk about later on, as a cinema-going experience, this is, 
like almost unparalleled, at least in recent history, as something, as you said earlier on in your phrases, like it kind of grabs you by the balls or whatever, yeah. right? It balls to the wall or something to yeah. that effect, right? It it's, kicks in about the five minute mark and it doesn't let up until the, what, 115 minute mark or whatever it is when it comes to a close. And that sounds like hyperbole. That sounds like the kind of thing where you think, oh, okay, there are a lot of action sequences. Like every superhero movie has a bunch of action sequences and finds those of action. No, this is not that. This is an action sequence with a little bit of plot at the beginning and a little bit of resolution at the end, but it's basically a chase scene for like two hours. Yeah, and I think, again, it's easy to criticise the film for that, but I think part of the reason it works... Oh, it's not criticism from me, though. No, 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 not at all. Um, But again, part of the reason I think it works so well is just the way it's shot and the fact that we seem to be having this, hopefully now, this will spark a movement into away from just big, meaningless CGI scenes, which sometimes work, sometimes look great. If you compare this, the action scenes in this to Fast and Furious 7, for example, Fast and Furious 7 is an exciting film, but it, Mad Max blows it out of the water. But isn't a better comparison of stuff we talked about recently, comparing this to Age of Ultron? Because for me, Age of Ultron, the big action sequence, even take the um, Iron Man Hulk fight in that film, because it is so CGI heavy, it has no... It's not tangible like it doesn't feel like it has impact despite the fact that you're seeing like a city laid to waste by these giant creature robot fight thing it doesn't impact on me very much mm. whereas when you've got in this thing physical effects which I think is what you're well, coming yeah, on to I mean, right? you know the, the actual cars they're driving how much fun it would have been to film is just and, it would have been amazing and the like, actual cars they're driving are there when motorcyclists are flying over trucks the motorcycles are like, and you can it's like nitro circus you can, or something like you, that. Yeah, right? you can you can feel you can feel it when the stuntmen hit the floor because it is stuntmen hitting the floor. Yeah, and let's let's not like jump over. Like I've got to pick up on this thing from the all of that action and all of the stuff that's going on on the screen. The guy whose role it is to be strapped to the front of a truck playing electric guitar, just like shredding throughout that and getting guitar, back there. That guitar actually works and spits fire. Yeah, I want yeah, that. The, I want that. Genuinely true. Like, and it's just. It's just ridiculous. It's just pure escapism, completely shamelessly over the top, and it doesn't care. Yeah, and funnily enough on that, um, myself and, and some friends, we're going to uh, a couple of weeks' time Temples Festival in Bristol, which is just going to be three days of like really, really heavy music. And uh, the guy that I'm going with... Um, I've told him that before we go to that festival, he's got to go and see Mad Max. If nothing else, for well, all of the great action and for the friggin' electric guitar player who has well, I mean, flames coming thing. out. You've just, just got to sit there and embrace and love the silliness of the whole thing. Like, yeah. it, it, although, although it's gritty and it's fair play to George Miller, it's, be- it's beautifully shot. It's just so knowingly over the top. It's just... You can't help but sit there and just watch the whole film with a massive smile on your face. Okay, so now we got to that point, I think, in the, the review of this thing, where I can say, is there anything about Mad Max where you would say, ah, oh, that's, that's a bum note, that doesn't work for me, or that's a negative? Is there anything at all for you? Because I've got maybe one thing in mind, but I'd be interested to know what you've got. No, not really. I mean, I, I have heard, I have read criticism, and we'll probably talk about this a bit later on, where they've people have complained that Mad Max has taken a backseat to Charlie Theron's character, and that it's a kind of an anti-man film and it should have been called Furiosa yeah, Fury Road I don't necessarily yeah. agree with that I like I like the fact that Max is in the background and if you if you if you watch sort of his role in the other if you watch his role in Mad Max 2 he plays a very similar role to the way the role he plays in Mad Max 2 he helps out a group of people then disappears off right. and even in Thunderdome he helps out a group of people 
and disappears and, off. And let's be fair, to your average cinema goer, they're not going to be bothered whether Mad Max is the set front and centre or not. They're going to be bothered whether the characters are engaging and whether the action is exciting and whether the film keeps their attention. If Charlize Theron does a lot of the legwork for that, then fine. Charlize Theron does a great job in this film and, you know, all credit to her. And let's not worry too much. I mean, Tom Hardy's performance, as you mentioned earlier on, is so physical. There's so much great physical work that he does, as we've seen in a number of his other films, not least uh, something like Bronson, which I don't mm. like very much personally, but physicality is, is key you know with with Tom Hardy and and it's funny to draw a comparison I think between uh, Tom Hardy and this and Tom Hardy and Locke but maybe that's a discussion for another time <laughs> um yes his performance is great he does everything he needs to do very well and who cares who cares who's front and center I mean my thing is if anything um I've read bits and pieces about Mad Max some people have got very sort of frothy about Mad Max being this kind of feminist tract and the the, the sort of strength of the female characters is, is front and center and I wouldn't necessarily wholeheartedly go against that but I did have a bit of an issue with the group of wives seeming like they had stepped out of like I don't know gap advertising shoot or something um Rosie Huntington Whiteley is in that group and it just, I don't know, it played a bit awkwardly for me, that section, because it seemed a bit... The women were portrayed as, as pretty, like, flaky and catwalky, and I, I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know what exactly I'm going for with this, but I don't think it's maybe the, the feminist work that some people think it is. No, and I don't... I don't what I find frustrating is, is um, that people have, have taken the time to read that into it. I don't think it was ever intended as a feminist work. No, so and it, I'm not saying that that's, that's I think key. It's, I think it's right. a positive. I think it's a positive. I think it's it's. I'm kind of ambivalent to whether it's feminist or not because it's so entertaining, and the fact it has got a strong female character in Charlie's Theron is great. But I think I think if if I think it's a Mad Max film, and I think with with just how entertaining it is, you're probably looking if you're looking for a reading of it. It's mad fucking Max. Yeah, and I mean, as we were discussing off air, um, clickbait is king these days. And if you can write a think piece about how Mad Max is either feminist or misogynist, then you're going to get more mm. clicks than if you just say, "Does it really matter?" It's a Mad Max film, yeah. which you know. Um, just last thing then on on characters, we can't go past this review without saying uh, Nicholas Holt, fantastic. Mm. Um, Nicholas Holt, an actor that we obviously see all the way back to Skins um, up to now, I think he's developed into a real talent. And in this thing, he's almost He's speaking like a sort of half language. He's almost unrecognisable, isn't he? Yeah, almost unrecognisable. You really have to look at him carefully and yeah. think, oh, I know, I know this guy. And yeah, I think his performance is one of the real high points of the whole mm. film. So, you know, good on, on him. And let's look out for Nicholas Holt in other stuff. Yeah, and um, see, it, see it on the big screen. Uh, absolutely do absolutely yeah if you watch this thing on your phone or on your laptop then you are a fool uh, yeah. get to the biggest screen you possibly can with the best sound system going and and enjoy yourself because it is a, an absolute riot yeah I, yeah early early contender for uh, blockbuster of the year and i think i'd be very surprised if it isn't sitting on our top 10 list at the end of the year yeah but. yeah i'm probably with you on that so that brings us to our vastly contrasting second film which is far from the madding crowd mm. from um the well from uh, directed by Thomas Vinterberg who's filmed The Hunt we spoke about not yeah. too long ago I think it came up on a list yeah, or, or something like that it may be best of the year for, for you I think, I think it might for the two of us yeah. Uh, last year yeah so coming into this thing what I know about it is that I'm a big fan of the Thomas Hardy book Farm for the Madden Crowd I'm a big fan of Thomas Vinterberg Tom Hardy Tom Hardy indeed <laughs> um, yeah there, there you go <laughs> seamless the link, connection yeah. seamless link <laughs> 
Um, not the same one. Uh, <laughs> yes, as well as that, we have Carrie Mulligan in the lead role of Bathsheba, which is um, very well was a very exciting thing for me prior to seeing this. Um, we've got Juno Temple in a supporting role. I like her quite a lot. The story, in case anybody is unaware, centres around the Bathsheba character played here by the woman whose name I've just forgotten, having just said Carrie it. Mulligan. Carrie Mulligan, thank you. Uh, played by Carrie Mulligan, who is, um, at, early in the film, proposed to by a man going by the name of Oak, uh, played here by uh, Matthias Schoenartz, I believe is his name. That's not bad pronunciation. Um, and he seems to be, and at least from the book... Uh, and I'll get more to the book later he seems to be a sort of salt of the earth rugged capable man he proposes to her having seen her out in the fields um, working the land and she essentially knocks him back he stays in the background for a long time in the film whilst she is courted by a couple of other men um, one of whom is played fantastically well by Michael Sheen who is a very moneyed man and somewhat unlucky in love and somewhat awkward around women and awkward with expressing himself. And the other is a sort of gallivanting showman who is going or, or attempting to whisk her off her feet and take her into a sort of life of romance and, um, and action that maybe she had never imagined for herself. Although the plot pivots on the fact that Bathsheba, just after her rejection of the first man, inherits her own land and her own farm. So she goes from being a um, fairly, or relatively speaking, um, poor individual to being quite wealthy and in control of her own destiny. And she is a very strong-willed female character who wants to be in charge of, of the running of her own When's life, set? essentially. Oh, don't ask me for, for a year when it's set. You can't spring that olden on me times. now. You don't know. When was, when was Mad Max 1 released? It's set in olden times. It's set in the fucking olden times. I'm really tired. Um, okay, so, Paul, you've seen this as well. You haven't read the novel, which is no discredit to you because, you know, it's not that everybody has. What, as just a film, as a two-hour piece of cinema entertainment, what did you make of this thing? I think it was, it was lavishly, lavishly shot. Um, I think Thomas Winterberg was was the perfect perfect choice to direct a film of this nature. I will go on record to say that films of this type and this kind of genre aren't always my thing. It's a period piece. Yeah, period. Yeah, period dramas aren't always my thing. Um, I in the same in the same way that you could say you know any film's predictable. I always find I find the storylines predictable. And although I hadn't read the book, I could see what was coming, uh, and I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen it. Uh, but that that being said. As a period piece and as as a film, it's lavishly produced um, for the most part. In fact, probably everyone delivers a really good performance. Um, and I still, you know, and the, the payoff at the end, although I saw it coming away off, and I would say probably the majority of people watching the film have read the book anyway, so that doesn't really matter. Uh, I'm still really engaged with the payoff at the end. And as and as a as a period piece, I thought it was a fantastic. It's a fantastic piece of filmmaking. Not necessarily one of my favourite films of all time. But certainly a very, very well, very, very well made film. And is there anything about the film? I'm not trying to interview you here, but is there anything <laughs> about the film where you just thought like that just doesn't work for me? Um, I'm only holding back because I want to get to my take on it, and and I'd be interested to kind of get your your feed on it first of all. Really, I think I know where you're going with this. The, the Matthias Schoenitz character. I think I don't know whether any 
woman would have said no to him at any point ever. <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I think that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> I, I think that you do sort of um, draw attention to... If what... the competition is Michael Sheen and some tough twat, uh, <laughs> then Matthias Schoenhardt kind of wins, wins hands down, really. Well, that's funnily, you've, you've quoted directly from the uh, source text because the, uh, the character <laughs> was described as a, some tough twat when <laughs> he was introduced. But um, no, I, I think that does sort of uh, flag up one of my reservations with this film. But to get to the positives, first of all, yeah, I agree with you. Performances almost universally strong. Michael mm. Sheen is, if, as we know, like an incredibly capable actor in things like uh, this, and things like Frost Nixon, um, things like uh, Masters of Sex uh, as well, which is a, obviously a television series, not a film. But an underworld? Oh no, maybe not underworld. Is he in underworld? Oh, he may or may not be in underworld. underworld. But anyway, you might have taken that check. <laughs> but um, yeah, re- I would say maybe the strongest performance of the film comes from Michael Sheen. Um, close second place is Carrie Mulligan. The thing that I think encapsulates the reason why I like Carrie Mulligan, and I don't know if I've expressed this before, is that Carrie Mulligan has this face whereby she can seem at turns 20 and 40. Yeah. So depending on the way that she, yeah, the expression on her face, the way she's holding herself, she can seem like this kind of ingenue, innocent young woman with starry eyes, or she can seem just jaded by the the problems and Mm. difficulties and trials of her life. We've seen this in something like Shame. We've Mm. seen this in something like uh, Never Let Me Go. Um, There are countless examples where Carrie Mulligan at turns can seem both vulnerable, young and innocent, and then... Absolutely, yeah. And isn't she um, in Drive? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I I thought there was going to be one where I'd say that and be called out as a moron because I'm tired and (laughs) and I've mentioned something completely erroneous. Um, Yeah, really strong performance from from Carrie Mulligan in that role, which is, um, I think, a very rewarding one for a young actress, but not an easy one to manage, maybe. Problem-wise... Other than performances, I think that is, there's a problem that exists with any work of, of sort of highly regarded literature of the length of Far From The Manning Crowd when adapting it to a two-hour film, which is it comes out a little bit at times. At its worst, um, and it's a very good film, but at its worst, like, um, do you remember Spark Notes? No. This is like a GCSE reference, all our GCSE fans out there. Um, Spark Notes, that was what you would have when you were doing like GCSE English. And you hadn't really read the source material, but you had an exam on it. Yes. And it gave you like the key scenes. Yes, yeah, I know where you're coming And from, you just yeah. read that and it was like a Almost little... Almost like the junior novelisation. Yeah, it was like a little <laughs> pamphlet and you read yeah. through that and then you could pass your exam. Sometimes in this film, because we've got to go from A to B to C to D, it does feel a bit spark notes, let notes, other notes companies are available and making <laughs> notes on stuff. Um, that's a bit of a problem for me, but I don't know how Vinterberg would get around that other than making like a... Actually, the, um, the Schlesinger film from the 70s that was the original work mm. of this to, to the big screen, I think that's about three hours. I watched a, rewatched a bit of it recently. So I think it's about three hours. So it could have been a longer film, mm. I guess, but I think you're going to alienate a certain amount of the audience if you go three hours. Um, in addition to that, yes, Matthew Schoenartz is too attractive. Oak should be more rugged and, and solid. Is it Matthias Schoenhardt, and listeners out there, you may be able to help us, is it his first English language film? I, I don't think so. Okay. My inclination says it's not, but I might be wrong. We'll, we'll check this out after the show and get back to you and mention it later. Um, additionally, and really the key to my problems with this, is a couple of scenes. One of those scenes is the one that I'll mention, I think, and this is the one for me that encapsulates everything that Far From the Madding Crowd is about to my young mind at age 15, 16 when I read this thing. 
And that is the scene where um, Carrie Mulligan's character has just got married to our dashing man waving the yeah. sword. And they are having their wedding party and all the guests are getting drunk on whatever it is, ales that they've imported or whatever. Um, they're all having a jolly good time. And she's clearly, you can see, a little distressed about his conduct and the way yeah. that he's acting. In the book, it doesn't have to be the book, but in the book she goes to bed and she's awoken and she goes outside and she seems, sees that this storm is brewing and that oak is up securing the roofs of the... Um, the shelters for their grain right and it needs to be protected and just like in the film yeah. she joins with him in order to protect those crops yes because that's what needs to be done yeah oak's character is all about what needs to be done and for me the center of that book is about what needs to be in existence for a relationship to be lasting mm. and what that is is two people who are willing no matter what to do things together to get through difficult times. See, now I would, I'm going to come in on this point. Ooh. I don't think the film necessarily shows that. Mm. For me, I didn't take that from the film. Exactly. No, it's in, and I've exactly. not read the book, but no, I would, you, it's a fair point. You I didn't, support my point. I didn't take that from the film. I you support my point because in the book, some of the writing in that section is some of the best writing in the book. And nature is like this third character mm. between the two of them, Oak and Bathsheba. Nature is the third character. Nature is a powerful and sort of um, uncaring and violent. And it's threatening them. And they bond together in such a way to get through this tough situation, which in the book seems to almost be threatening their lives. So in, in the book, then, if, if, I may, if I may step in again, in the book, do you feel like things are... Keep, do you think they're, they're being kept apart against their will? Is that is things are getting in the way of them being together I think that yeah yeah to a certain degree circumstance is the reason they're not together and the conflicted nature of the central character is the reason they're not together and the inability of Oak to express himself is one of the reasons they're not together but he expresses himself through action mm. for example one of my favourite scenes it stuck with me from 15 years ago when he punctures the sheep in order to release the gas yeah. I mean how much symbolism do you need mm. you're releasing tension from a situation through your actions so you know, what, what I took from the film was that Bathsheba's character was basically not with him because she was just being a bit silly <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's, that's another read on it that's definitely another yeah, read I was just like well what, what is she doing like what yeah. you know what and I, yeah, and I kind of inevitable. I thought it was, it was inevitable they were going to get together, which you know, and that payoff was good when he kind of turns around and and they do they do get together at the end. But no, I, I think you're right. I never I never got the feeling that the film was about wider relationships in terms of having to work together to get through things. I didn't take that from the film myself. Right, and 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 maybe I come at this with a slant because it meant so much to me personally at the time when I read the book and I've kind of carried that for 15 years and then I came to this and I was really enjoying seeing this thing brought to screen again because I've seen the, the previous film. But... I did feel that was a bit of a problem, not focusing on a couple of those key scenes at greater length. They were cut too short. Um, and I also think it all seemed a bit clean. Mm. The, in in the, the Schlesinger film and in the book, it's dirty. It's You're living in, in the countryside. You're covered in mud. You're, you're digging in. You're, you're working hard on the land. In this thing, no, people I have like a little bit of mud yeah, on their face really, every now really, and again. I never really got the impression that she did anything on the farm to run the farm really I mean she she, she of, wades in when they're when they're yeah, sheep and, dipping and stuff like that almost, that's, that's good it, it almost feels like those scenes are there they're sort of perfunctory to yeah perfunctory to go character. she is working on the farm yeah it all seemed a bit clean I mean it's it's lush the environment's lush but the environment should be more threatening it should be more more yeah just down and dirty and we need a bit more of that because otherwise it seems a bit too idyllic for me mm. um, and, and that it was a bit 
problematic. But by and large, I think it was a, a good adaptation. I think there were some really strong things, not least the performances that we've mentioned. I think I do recommend it to fans of the book or otherwise. Yeah, and I, I think just think there are a couple yeah, of things. It's, that, just, that it's, just, it's a strong film, but not not without fault. And certainly Vinterberg as director, I think, is a great choice. Yeah, and by the way, P.S. on anything Vinterberg, Festin. If you haven't seen Festin, dig it out. It's from 1998, and I think it's the best thing that Thomas Vinterberg's ever done. Even though obviously it led on to, to sort of bigger mm. things and something like that. It's not to pl- downplay a film like the. Which I think is superb, and some of uh, other of his work, but Festin. Okay, okay. So that's about it for the reviews side of the show. Um, the next bit, I think we've we've talked we've touched on this subject, I think before. Yeah, um, I, being I should, that we've written reviews ourselves. We're going to talk about a bit about film criticism, I think, Pete. Yeah, Paul. I should mention at this point for anyone who's thinking, why the hell are you cutting off the review section after two reviews? Um, sorry to disappoint. What we're going to do on this episode is we're going to keep to those two features. And then we're going to put out an episode in the near future, probably the next week or two, in which we're going to do like a first half of the year catch up and just hammer out reviews of maybe the most noteworthy films, whether good or bad, that we've seen in the first half of the year. Because obviously doing a show like this, if we covered every film that we had watched, it would be a three, four hour show every week. And with the best one in the world, I don't think anybody wants to listen to that <laughs> much. Of us. If you do, please let us know and we will record podcast extras. Well, we can we, in fact, thing. if you do, please let us know for a small fee, we will come around and do the podcast in your lounge oh hell yeah we'll just invite you down the pub and tell you about all the films we've watched and bore you to tears but yeah what we wanted to do for the middle part of today's show anyway as Paul mentioned is talk a little bit about film criticism and something that has come to light um, for the two of us this last week uh, by way of Sight and Sound magazine is a favourite of mine and a a favourite of Paul's as well I think really Um, and that is the editorial uh, op-ed piece written by Sight and Sound editor uh, current Sight and Sound editor Nick James Nick James is a film um, journalist who I hold in fairly high regard. I think he writes very well, and I think the op-ed things that he does at the beginning of each episode, each episode, each uh, edition of Sight and Sound, are generally engaging. I mean, I'm, I'm one of the people that's, and I imagine like like a lot of people, and actually a film lecturer of mine at university said pretty much the same thing. I'm quite guilty of, at times, buying Sight and Sound and then not opening it until the end of the month, because... I do love the publication. It's a very interesting read, but sometimes you're not quite in the mood for it. However, if there's one article I read religiously every month, it's always Nick James's piece because yeah. he's always got something to say, and he's most for the most part he's always got something relevant to say. You know, you know. Sorry to just be a bit self-indulgent for a second, but something I did this week that made me extremely happy is um, the spare room in my house has for a long time been the idea of it has been to be kind of the office and the place where I write stuff and, and the place where we work on things. Much like this, this. Much like Strangers HQ, the studio in which we are currently sitting. Uh, The problem has been that it hasn't been very well organised and stuff. So this week um, I was organising it, putting up some pictures and stuff and making it into a little like cave for like writing film reviews and watching screeners and whatnot. Um, One of the things I did there is I had, you know, those magazine uh, organisers in which you Mm. can stick your magazines. I'm talking like Mark Kermode and I wish I wouldn't, in which you. This is a Mark Kermode (laughs) thing that he picked up on a few years ago and is really annoying. But anyway... Um, I got every episode that I have of Sight and Sound and put a year's worth every in issue, each... Perhaps, or... Every issue. Since <laughs> I came back to the UK at the very beginning of 2012, I have bought every single issue of this magazine. So anyway, that made me incredibly happy. And this brings us to Nick James and his piece. This piece, uh, creatively, Paul, is called True Crit. Do you think see what he's done there? No. It's a play on true grit. I got it. True, I yeah, it. I thought you might have got that. Yeah. Right, and the reason that um, he has written, or the, the cause of his writing this month, 
is to discuss an article that he wrote, a piece he wrote in 2008 about the state of film criticism, particularly um, in magazines and online. That's what concerns the likes of Nick James and the likes of Paul and I, I suppose. And he made some interesting points. I've got a feeling, and yeah. I, can't, I can't claim this to be 100% true, I've got a feeling I may have read that piece. In 2008. In 2008, yes. Right, so cast your mind back. Nick James has kind of reassessed his piece. He's essentially been pretty favourable to what he wrote in 2008, whilst acknowledging that he was a younger man at that time and maybe a little bit naive in certain ways. And I don't want to like go through this laboriously and pick apart everything that he said, but I just want to focus maybe on a couple of points and then we can discuss those points and, and, and move on. Um, one of those then is this and I'm going to read sections verbatim and just get Paul to respond to these and then I'll pitch in so first of all first up is the importance of film evaluation it's obvious that the critics role as a tipster of what to see on a Friday night is less central than it was because we now have access to a cacophony of opinions professional and otherwise first of all Paul um the, the critic's role as a tipster of what to see on a Friday or Saturday night is less important now because there's so much information out there. We can basically agree on that, right? Yes. Um, and I think the critic's role as a tipster of what to see on a Friday night is probably, in some ways, unfortunately, probably even dead and buried, to be fair. Because most people will go and see what's pushed heavily in, ad in terms of advertising mm. advertising campaigns. Yeah. And you can... You can it's not difficult to go out and find someone that's got something good to say about any film that was ever made. If you if you look at R.I.P.D. as an example, which is a film I watched recently, it's it's a terrible film, yeah. fundamentally terrible. But I guarantee you that on that box, on that home release box, there will film be a year. good review. Film yeah. year, the action there film. Will, there the will year. be a quote from most likely to be a blogger that no, says it's the, the action film of the year. "Quote unquote culture editor of Heat magazine who's on every yeah, single someone thing. you you can find a good review for any film somewhere. Yeah, and I mean, okay, take that case in point, R.I.P.D., which by your account, I haven't seen it yet, is is pretty atrocious. Um, why would you, if you had, have gone and seen that at the cinema? It's not because of what a critic's written. It's because you've seen a trailer that looks a little bit flashy, and you've heard a little bit of positive, you know, advertising essentially around it, which is what you mentioned. So I think you're right to say that at least at point of contact, most regular film fans or regular members of the public see advertising, think that looks vaguely interesting. I want to go and form my own opinion, right? This is pretty much fair at this point. Yeah. I don't think there are that many people who are reading in-depth reviews before they decide to go and see a film. I think, and also I think people people look at star ratings, which is why which is why I, we've never had star ratings on, on The Strangers' website and I will never have star ratings on The Strangers' website because it's very easy for people to look at star ratings. That being said... Oh, I started putting star ratings on, uh, on stuff. You're, you're fired. Uh... Um, that being said, a number of people in my office were talking about Mad Max that I don't think, Mad Max Fury Road, that I don't think would have necessarily gone to see it. However, and this really surprised me, people went, oh my God, Empire have given it five stars. Empire never give any film five stars. Now, they're wrong in what they say. Empire give quite a lot of films five stars. Empire may be in films that they would consider going to see don't have acts don't necessarily get five stars empire do give quite a lot of films five stars but that that really surprised me because i genuinely thought that people would just completely ignore reviews and go regardless the fact that people had chosen to see it because it got a five star review indicates maybe they 
maybe in that indicates maybe he is slightly wrong in what he says. Though. Well, it's a shorthand, isn't it? If you pick mm. up a newspaper and you see Mad Max, for example, uh, five stars, and you think, okay, that seal of approval, mm. you know, uh, stamp of authority, I'll go and see it. If I was on the fence, it's got five stars, boom. Like, this is why star ratings work, at least for the publications, because it's a way of just shepherding people. You know, if the film got a one-star review, no, there's no way I'm going to go and see that. They've given it one star. So I think when it's at either polar end, whether it's mm. one star or five stars, then you've got some sway from a critical perspective. So you're right. I think maybe there is some leeway for critics to impact, but unfortunately, I think that's in a rather binary, positive or negative way. And this brings us something we talked about a little bit earlier on, um, off air. Sorry, everyone, that doesn't really make sense as a, a sort of... Um, part of the show but this is things aggregators like Rotten Tomatoes right you look on Rotten Tomatoes and you see that a film Mad Max for example this week uh, has 97% or yeah. something like that but if you dig a bit deeper I mean how does Rotten Tomatoes work either you take a piece of re review uh, criticism and you say that was positive therefore that is binary a one or it was negative that is in binary a zero and what we uh, accumulate on Rotten Tomatoes is a collection of those ones and zeros and then calculate what percentage of people were ones and what percentage were zeros. And that, I think, is a, a rather crude way no, of I doing would say, things. I, I would agree it's fundamentally flawed because, again, I, you know, I go back to having, having conversations with people in my office at work and day-to-day -day at work. And I'll come in and say, well, Age of Ultron, as a recent example, I came into work and said, you know, it was all right. I didn't think it was great. And suddenly it's, you hate the film. Oh, Paul didn't like it. Mm. Like, well, I didn't say that. Or they, go, or I'd say I gave a film three stars. Yeah. Or again, going back to Empire because it's a major publication, people go, oh, I only got three stars in Empire. I'm not going to go and watch that now. Yeah. It's like, well, actually, three stars isn't technically a bad review for a start, and there is nothing wrong with there was nothing wrong with a lot of three star films. They may not be earth shatteringly good. They may not be redefining a genre, but. Three stars isn't necessarily a bad score, and one person's three stars might be your five stars. Do you know what I mean? Like, if if someone sits on the fence and says this is a three star movie, if it hits certain notes for you, it could be a five star film. Mm. And on the micro level as well, don't you think that like when you go to see a film and you come out of it, and this is a particular a sort of bugbear of mine and, and an unavoidable one, when you go to see a film with other people, when you come out of the theatre. Even when we go and see, you know, unavoidably we go and see people, uh, go and see, excuse me, films together, we come out and we'll say, what do you think of that? And the only way to respond to that question at the first instance is to say, I liked it or I didn't like it. Mm. But it's very difficult to come out of a screening of whatever and say, you know, here are my reservations, here are the positive points that I have to make, and I land somewhere in the middle. It's quite hard, because everyone wants to know, was it good, was it not good? Like you said with your work colleagues, is it a good film, is it a shit film? You tell me, one or the other. But, there went, but I think with the way, the way that, that criticism works at the moment, people either seem to, you either seem to go, oh, it was good or it was bad, there's no... There's no in between. There's yeah. no. There's no kind of. I, mean, I think this star ratings. Well, that's exactly the point I'm making. Really, star ratings kind of do that to a film. There's no like, oh, well, this bit was good. I like this bit. It was. It was a solid genre piece, but it wasn't superb. You know who doesn't use star ratings? Sight and Sound. Sound. Back to our friend Nick James and Strangers in the Cinema. And, and Strangers in the Cinema. They are the two bastions of great <laughs> film criticism. You guys. Um, 
Yes. So Nick James concludes in this section, anyway, of, of this piece, that the only criticism that really can, I'm paraphrasing, but that can stand apart from the crowd is criticism that is, to quote, passionate and judicious, not part of the general even-handed blandness of congratulation, which I think is a statement I would ad- adhere to and follow and pretty much to the letter. Paul, what do you think about that? Well, I think I think he's obviously listened to the first part of this very podcast. Well, think, that, that's usually what he bases his columns on, <laughs> yeah, that Nick, yeah. Nick James. That's where he's got to the um, conclusion. That yeah, I, I, would, I would completely agree with that sentiment, and I've, um, I've made this, this point before. I think the fundamental problem with the internet and crit- film criticism where it stands at the moment is there is a line is not drawn between a review and a blog piece. Mm. So opinion is fine. Opinion does, you know, I don't, I try to, I try not to put my opinion into reviews, um, but obviously it ultimately seeps in. For me, a critic's job is to point out whether something's fundamentally good, fundamentally ticks the boxes as a good film. Is there good examples of filmmaking in there? Um, and not necessarily to espouse opinion. I know other people disagree with me on that, but he's right. He's absolutely right to say it needs to be. It needs to be even-handed. It needs to weigh up the pros and cons of the film. And then after no, that, no, no. He's saying the opposite of that. He's saying that the criticism that will will come to the fore at this point is criticism that is not because if I come back to the quote. Uh, not part of the general even-handed blandness of congratulations. So I think what Nick James is saying is that if you are too even-handed and just sort of saying, here are the good points, here are the bad points, yeah, good film, go along, Empire magazine, four stars. No, but that's he, what he's he mentions the even-handed blandness of congratulation. Sure. Not, not necessarily... Yeah, okay. I see what you're saying, and I don't think that. Yeah, you're right. He's not railing against being even in the way that you no, approach that's, reviewing that's the a point film. I was yeah, making, absolutely. Yeah. You need to be even in the approach you reviewing a film. You need to go. Okay, well, I, I love that film, but as a critic, when you're writing a when you're writing a view of something, you need to you need to have your eyes open. And go. Okay, I love that film, but at the same time, I can see what was wrong with it. Mm. Not just, and that for me is the difference between a review and a blog. Blogging yeah. has its place, but blogging is opinion pieces and not criticism. Yeah, and I mean, this is something else that you mentioned in the article as well. Uh, I'm paraphrasing uh, again, but that film critics, and I think, yeah, I don't know what, what you think about this, but it sort of feeds into your point, should be at least um, drawing on a background in experience, Yeah, right? If it's not... I think later in the piece he says that maybe film critics are just self-appointed referees within the general conversation of film and I think that may be the case you know if you're going to put your head above the parapet and say I am a critic now uh, whether it be a blogger or a YouTube uh, video creator or someone who is putting out podcasts who could imagine um if you're going to put yourself in that position, you are kind of saying, I'm a self-appointed referee and I have something interesting or important to say, but that should be based in some backlog, back catalogue of experience where you feel that you can not tell people what is good and what is bad as some kind of purveyor of uh, objective truth, but that you can at least back up your subjective opinions with history, with experience, with, um, yeah, direct experience of filmmakers, of actors, of, of films of that genre and so on. And I think that is where we come with this idea that being even handed is important, but you've got to be passionate from a position of some experience, I would say. Yeah, and I, I I would agree with that point, and I think that's you know that's 
the key thing. Although you know the people, there are people that can write in a like lively style, but I think you you do need some. You know what you're doing now. You're being even-handed. I'm being even-handed. <laughs> yes, I am. I am being even-handed because I don't want to be mean to people. I don't want to, I don't want to be mean to to other people to other people's. You know, but, efforts okay, that we put well, Paul, well, that, that directly brings us to the last point to wrap up our chat then. Um, because you said, I, you know, I don't want to be mean to people or I don't want to be, you know, maybe one-sided. I and have we, been. I have I have been horrible to film... Well, there's, I have been I have been perceived to be horrible to filmmakers on stage at film festivals because I don't like their films. So it's, mean is probably the wrong word because I have been mean to people. But. Sure, but I don't think that comes from a position of trying to personally hurt people. It no, comes from a, all, a place no. that could be perceived as mean if you if you don't accept the comments that you've made, right? Yeah, that's but fair, yeah. The, the, the point that I want to come to is uh, really related to uh, a buzz phrase at this point in internet's development which is a uh, clickbait and I re- despise right <laughs> the reason I mean we all despise clickbait um but we all bloody read it though don't we? yeah and, and like to the lesser or greater extent I think we all kind of produce it as well but clickbait obviously being pieces on the internet which are written not only in film criticism but in all kinds of criticism and in personal blogging and on Facebook statuses and all over the place statuses posts that are designed to generate conversation even if I think the um, statements or statement made is disingenuous taking case uh, as a case in point things like is it me total films or is it, is it me or is it me? Yeah, I said uh, earlier on when we were discussing this. Is it me, or is only God forgives the best film of the last ten years? The answer to that is obviously no. But the reason why you have written that is just to get people involved. And in I think there, there is some there is some really ridiculous. Uh, is it just me or articles? And I think is it just me, or is the Lost World better than Jurassic Park? Think of one or, now. Think of one. Clickbait for this show. Is it just me? Is it just me, or is Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome better than the original Mad Max film. Brilliant. Put it's that, that kind put of that up on the side. There are, I'm, 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 that probably is on Total Film. Um, and okay, I understand why Total Film do it. It does does bring people in. What I don't understand what Total Film do is have Alex Zane write blog pieces for them, but that's a whole different subject matter. But I understand why they do it. It brings people in, but it's such it's a shame for me. It's a shame that we have to do that because it's not about. The quality of the writing anymore. Is it, it's, is not it about, Paul, it's not about Paul, the content. I can't get past this. Is it me or is Paul W. S. Anderson the greatest auteur of our generation? Oh. Is it just me, guys? Is it just me? <laughs> Hit me up, Facebook, Twitter, get back to me, yeah? Is it just me? It might just be me, but it will definitely get people talking. So, yeah. Um, where do we find ourselves with film criticism? I think what Nick James takes at the end of his, uh, or as his conclusion in this piece, is that Compared with 2008, we're not maybe in a position of crisis, I think this is what he says, because film critics who are preeminent online and elsewhere have sort of embraced the um, communal discussion. And he concludes the piece by saying that, really, it will always be about discourse, it will always be about discussion of films, and not necessarily about the people who are discussing, the personnel who are discussing those films. And I think I would agree that... With this show, with our site, with anything that we do, what we're attempting to do is open up a conversation to a wider audience. I don't, and I don't think Paul does, really give a shit whether we are regarded as great authorities on film or not, because that's not the issue. What is the issue is that we start conversations and discussions, interesting and engaging ones, about film, whether new or old, right? I mean, would you follow me on that? Yes. Yeah. yeah. In conclusion, yes. <laughs> yes, I would, and I think, and, and I think you, you make a valid point. It's important, to, you know. In my mind, I like to think I know a bit more than your average person about films. Mm. Um, I like to think that I, 
I'd hope that was true. Not Do better, think... not better, but different. Yeah, different. Yeah, <laughs> um, and that, and again, I you know I have a confidence that I have a fairly wide knowledge of films. I always know there's going to be a bigger authority out there than me. So I always know that whoever this in, there's going to be someone out there that knows more than me. So no. I don't regard myself as the ultimate authority figure in films. And who wants to be that, slightest. though? Who wants to be that as well? Like, I think this is a point that came up, is that like the film critics who say, I am going to be the arbiter of what is objectively good and bad, are those who have faded into the background. And I think the film critics who have become more and more prominent are those like... Um, to mention a few, uh, Peter Travers, Mark Kermode, um, the, the list goes on and on, really. Mm. But people who have embraced new media, embraced social media, and said, hey, come at me with your opinions, I'll listen to those opinions, I'll discuss those opinions, and make it into a conversation rather than a monologue. And I think that's what also on the show we're going for. And by the way, strangers, if anybody is indeed listening to this show, please follow up this discussion by getting in contact with us, commenting on what we've said, any of the reviews <laughs> that we've had on this show or other shows, anything that you think is good or bad, indifferent, or you know, just terrible or, or off base... Because we want those discussions to happen as well. We don't want to be sat here, you know, monologuing or, or dialoguing in a, in a vacuum. You know, we want other people to get involved. And I think that's a nice conclusion for this discussion, really. Yeah, and I think, um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a great conclusion to the discussion. You know, we, uh, we, are, we know you're listening, but we very rarely get Some feedback. Some of you are listening, you know that. We very rarely like, get feedback on, on what we say. So either, either you hate us and yeah. you listen to us out of pity... In which case, thanks, because we've got the click. <laughs> <laughs> Clickbaiting. Yeah. Clickbaiting, man. Yeah. Um, and if you do disagree with anything we say, you know, get in touch with us, start, start a dialogue with us. It would be interesting. It would be very interesting to get Yeah, and I don't, want to, I don't want to get all cocky about it, Paul, but we are, we are triple figures listenership now. Triple figures, yo. We've got, like, figures. we've got like triple figures of people tuning into this thing. Massively appreciate every single one of you who bothers to listen to our ramblings on the, the bi-weekly or tri-weekly. And, uh, and, uh, and also Nick James. Yeah. Um, we've talked about what you had to say. So yeah, hit us up, James. Right back at you. Yeah, yeah, come on. I want to hear your next op-ed on what Strangers in the Cinema have been saying and where that sits with, uh, with true crit <laughs> on your next issue. Yes. That brings us then to uh, clickbait. <laughs> talking of clickbait. <laughs> talking of clickbait. Uh, Here's our kind of phrase, uh, six of the best. Or as Pete put in a text message to me earlier, uh, six, the letter six, six OTB. Six so OTB, hash- son. Hashtag. Hashtag six, six OTB. OTB. <laughs> yeah. Get us on Twitter with six OTB. It's going to be trending by tomorrow. Yes. Once we put the, well, I say tomorrow. When we put this thing up in a few days, it's the uh, magic of showbiz. It's not so going to yeah, hashtag, hashtag six OTB. Six OTB. Yeah, we're, we're going to tie in. We're going to tie into the Wu Tang and OTB, uh, ODB with OTB yeah. taking on the legacy that the Wu Tang took years to build. Um, six OTB, Paul, is our six of the best countdown. On this countdown, we count down six of the best. You see, yeah. uh, films or things that exist within a particular category. This episode of our show uh, hashtag 6OTB hashtag 6OTB <laughs> this episode we have decided to go a little bit off track we're not going to talk specifically about films or film history or films that fit in a particular genre what we're going to talk about is six of the best cinema going experiences this is going to be comprised of three from Paul and three from me Pete Things that and do you know what? Next time we'll do six of the worst. Yeah, we? yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to follow this up with the six of the worst because we all know there's like terribly annoying experiences you have in the cinema. We've both had them. You've all had. And them. actually, we, we've we've we have we have kind of whinged on about some bad experiences in the cinema. But yeah, I think, yeah. yeah, today let's 
Let's be positive. Yes. You know why as well? Because we both, we went together, your uh, faithful editors of Strains in the Cinema, we went together to see Mad Max Fury Road in IMAX 3D. And it was a stunning cinema experience. So we're going to jump out of that and say, hey, in your lifetime as an avid film fan, Paul, what have you experienced that stuck with you for the last however many years and maybe unforgettable experiences in the cinema kick us off number six or whatever arbitrary number we're assigning to it what have you got jurassic park okay set the scene paul now, where are i'm not going to talk What's about going on? i'm not going to talk about the film as such i'm going to talk probably more about the trailer in fairness jurassic park for me was i went to the cinema quite a lot as a kid my dad my dad's quite into films himself so we, we were taken to the cinema quite a lot. Jurassic Park for me, it was it was the first time I'd ever seen a trailer and then gone, I'm going to follow that film. I've got this image in my head of me going on the internet and following the film. Mm. Uh, not in 1993 he didn't. So. Yeah, you'd have a tough but I just, time. I just remember the trailer going, Mum and Dad, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. Mm. And then I don't remember what film was on when I saw the Jurassic Park TV trailer. Spots. But... TV spots existed in 1993, right? Possibly, yeah. I would imagine. Yeah, so but so I just remember the excitement and then finally going, no one can see yeah. that. No to, one can see that. To, to translate that to the uh, stranger's <laughs> listener, Paul is sort of waggling his arms and making an excited child anyone, face. Anyone who knows me knows that expression. <laughs> yeah. Um, Kid in a candy shop yeah, kind of expression, yeah. 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 The, the excitement there, it was, it was the first time I was just like, oh my God, we're going to the cinema today to see Jurassic Park. And my God, did it not let me down. Yeah, can you remember where you saw this? In the cinema, obviously, but where were you in the country when you saw it? Basingstoke. Oh, Basingstoke. The the scene of our last podcast. The scene of our last podcast. Yeah, and is there an impressive cinema selection in Basingstoke? Is there one? Are there two? Are there three? Was this the major cinema? I I believe we saw Jurassic Park, and Basingstoke historians, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe (laughs) we would have seen if there is such a... The Basingstoke Historical Society. I believe we saw it at a... Warner Village Cinema Ooh. on the outskirts of Basingstoke, which is now an Odeon, but Warner Village Cinema with a little, probably was a little Bugs Bunny cartoon preceding it. But yes, mm. it would have been a Warner Village Cinema on the outskirts of Basingstoke. But yeah, and the, the reason I'm going to ask is because now obviously you're like, oh, the Mad Max trailer, and I've been very excited about Fury Road, and I've, you've followed trailers, and now you kind of. I try and avoid all of the footage that's put out online, but you, you know, you can, you know, when a Chris Nolan's film is announced, it's like three years before it comes out, and then what you, you mean, like, news <laughs> Chris Nolan's film's yeah. coming out? Yeah, I know it, the feeling. Just, that, that was that was the first time I got hooked by a trailer and thought, oh my god, I must watch that film. Yeah, yeah. And if you want any indication of how old I am, I was eleven. Oh, figure it out, mathematicians. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right, moving on to my yeah. As you know from these things, it's not really a. a three to one or a six to one or anything like that but my first nomination here um kind of keeping a bit in step with Paul because I'm going back to my teenage year I think you were you were what age did you say sorry when that happened I was 11 in you're 11 okay so I say teenage years um it's not teenage years for Paul but for me uh I think I would have been 15 when this uh, took place again mathematicians get your calculators out because I am talking about the cinema release of The Matrix the original Wachowski at the time I was still a teenager I was still a teenager on May 19th 1999 Ooh. Uh, Ooh. how's that for a date um at, <laughs> at the time these Wachowski brothers they were then uh, now Wachowski siblings um had released this film to much 
fanfare. And I think at 15 years old, I'd read a couple of little bits and pieces, probably in the newspaper or something like that, and it sounded like the kind of thing that I needed to see. There were mentions of, it's the greatest sci-fi movie since The Terminator, and things like this, which got me right hooked in, because obviously I'd watched as much sci-fi beyond my age bracket as I could as a kid and, and, and growing up. And I went to see this with my best friend, still best friend, look at that, over the duration of time, uh, Lawrence, uh, calling him out. And um, we sat, as my memory serves, like on the, I want to say front row, but it may may not have been. It was like pretty near to the front in the cinema. And the reason why this has stuck with me for all those years is pretty much rooted in the film itself, because it was such an exciting experience as a 15 year old as you can well imagine and as you probably had Paul the same experience yourself with The Matrix when it came out. Actually can I interrupt you there? You um, can. As much as I loved the experience of The Matrix at the cinema uh, there is one thing that I will never forget and I know this is your moment right. and not mine so I don't right. want to entirely this. steal it from you but when um, when your best friend leans over, well my best friend leans over to me and uh, when so Mr. Anderson <laughs> and the guy went <laughs> Mr. Anderson. Now, my son and being Anderson, and ever since then, even now, I get people, and this is why I know the release date. Yeah, because people go, Mr. Anderson. Yeah, I mean, and I go, and I go, wasn't funny on May nineteenth, nineteen ninety nine. Isn't funny now. Yeah, I mean, like, scarred it, me. It, I have to literally fight against the temptation whenever you want to contact someone on your phone to deliver the immortal lines. But I ask you, Mr. Anderson, <laughs> what use is a phone call when you are unable to speak? So, yeah, I think when we first met each other, that probably was the first bit of movie trivia that sprung into my mind. But um, that has made me, yeah, this experience of The Matrix. I mean, to summarise, really, the, uh, the, the thrill of that Matrix experience, it was coming out of the cinema and genuinely feeling like, if I see a cat cross the road and it looks in any way familiar, or anything that might in some way relate to deja vu, that probably is a glitch in the Matrix, because something has changed, and that proves to me that there is a real world that I don't yet know about. It was from this film that I took an active interest in philosophy, which is what I then studied as part of my university degree. It was a massively impactful moment, and I don't think I'll ever forget that, that screening. Paul, take us on to your second memory. Do I go embarrassing yet, or shall I save that till last? Shall I, I save embarrassing till last? Yeah, maybe I'm save, save, embarrassing save it, last. save it, okay. keep it back. What have you got next? 28 Days Later. Okay. Again. Oh, you told Warner, me in you the told Warner, me Warner, In yeah. the Warner Village Cinema. Quite into it. I was like, yeah, this is a cool movie. I'm quite a big fan of the film. I'm not a big fan of the, the final third, as, we, as we've discussed earlier. Um, off, off of podcast again. And in the scene where the plane flies overhead, and they all look up and they go, whoa it's only happened here, the rest of the world is fine, Hmm. the screen went to black. And I sat there and thought, that is one of the best endings to any film I've ever seen. 28 Days Later, aficionados know exactly what we're talking about. If you haven't seen the film, (laughs) it came out a long time ago. You should have seen it. Do we really need to warn against spoilers at this point? I genuinely was there thinking, oh my God, that's one of the best endings to any film I've ever seen. The power had gone out. Right. (laughs) So... We had a gap, and then unfortunately we got the the clumsy third part. I'd always remember it as a positive cinema experience, not that the power had gone out, but I really wish the film had ended there. Mm. Which brings you to your next 
Yes, it does. Now, this, I mean, making this countdown is a fairly arbitrary thing. There are loads of experiences I could talk about, but I wanted to go for one that really encapsulates that feeling that you get. I've talked about The Matrix and how I had that kind of awe coming out of the cinema and the world. You know, when you come out of a film and the world just looks a little bit different, and sometimes there's a mark of a really great film that's, that's hit you really in a, in a personal place or a, a creative place. This one is connected to that one. But I think I would describe it as the most profound response I've had to a film in terms of that alteration of reality leaving the cinema. And that was when I went to see, for the first time, I saw it twice in the cinema, for the first time, Inland Empire, which is, um, for uh, non-converts, is David Lynch's last feature film, his most recent feature film. He's coming back onto Twin Peaks. That's definitely happening. We've heard that recently. That's a whole other podcast. Yeah, when I went to see Inland Empire, I was already fully in the David Lynch camp. I mean, I'd seen Lost Highway, I'd seen Mulholland Drive, I'd seen The Elephant Man, I've seen most of the back catalogue of David Lynch. But that film, as much as it is a sort of meandering, um, taciturn, three-hour frustration for a lot of people, for me, hit me and caught me at a level, like, sort of below or beyond anything that I can maybe explain in in sort of clear terminology, but had just grabbed me so hard around the throat that when I came out of the screening of Inland Empire, I genuinely, the good friend of mine that I was with and I, both genuinely couldn't speak to each other for probably 10 to 15 minutes. It felt like 10 to 15 minutes after the film, we just walked up the road. We had to go and meet some people for a drink, but we walked up the road for no reason, in silence. We walked back in silence. We walked up the stairs to the bar, which was in the same place as the cinema. We'd left the cinema for no reason. And we walked back up to meet these people. We had to kind of take a breath and brace ourselves just to talk about what we'd just seen. If you haven't seen this film, it may leave you cold I am hugely jealous that you got to see that on the cinema screen and, yeah. also, and also I made a huge error in within an empire because mm. I was in Dublin on my 25th birthday and I was given the option by my girlfriend at the time to either go and see it was either Inland Empire or 300 mm-hmm. oh dear oh and dear selflessly I thought she won't like Inland Empire I'll go and see 300 instead and I passed up the opportunity to go for a three-course dinner at the Irish Film Institute and watching The Empire to go and see 300. Do you know... Mistake. You, you know we trailed the fact that we might do a chart of the worst cinema experiences. You know one that's locked for that countdown is my experience of seeing 300. When I saw 300, I think it's the probably one and only time I've gone to the cinema genuinely drunk. And we were sat on the back row. Someone else had booked the tickets. And it it just it infuriated me. I felt like I was chained to my chair. I wasn't allowed to leave and all my freedom had been taken away. And it was horrible. But anyway, Paul, uh, moving on, that brings you to your next Right, I'm going to... This is embarrassing, apparently, right? This is ultimately embarrassing. I'm going to roll two into one here. Both involves the Waterloo IMAX. Both involves Nolan's Batman film. So going to the Waterloo IMAX is an unforgettable experience. And Cheltenham, great, we've got an IMAX. Thank you, Cineworld. Nothing, in my experience, compares to the BFI IMAX screen in in the centre of London. So... Very briefly, to start on, the opening of The Dark Knight and the bank robbery scene, just wow. People, you, people, you could hear people's jaws drop in. I did mention that, that I saw this on the biggest screen in Asia, right? 
Okay. Yeah, it's the size of a basketball court, Paul. But you know, go ahead. With well, your, fair enough. <laughs> with your We've had this discussion the, before. The jaw dropping big IMAX screen is amazing. So you can, hell yeah. So that was fantastic. Dark Knight Rises. This is where the embarrassment comes in. So, okay. And also, still one of my favourite cinema experiences. So, about midway through Dark Knight Rises, Bane beats the shit out of Batman and uh, kind of snaps his back and dispenses with him. I'm in tears. <laughs> right. I've heard you tell this right. story right. before. I'm literally in tears. And not just not just a little bit of tears, I'm crying like a baby. So, I look around and then I'm like, okay, well, why is no one else crying? This is really sad. It gets to the end of Dark Knight Rises... And in my head, Batman's dead, and I'm gone, literally blubbing, like, literally blubbing. People are looking around. So going, you think Nolan's killed Batman? I think Nolan's point. killed Batman. I missed the whole thing about the autopilot in the in the Batwing and in the back of whatever. The, I cannot exaggerate enough just how much I was crying. And I look around, expecting everyone else to be in tears, and mm. all they get is just baffled looks at me with people going. Is he, is he crying? This, and I this, cannot... I this cannot strangers, just... excuse me, I'm going to speak directly to our audience. <laughs> strangers, this is the same man who was completely emotionally unaffected by the Reese Witherspoon film Wild, which dealt with the death of her mother and her emotional journey along a long and arduous track, but has been reduced to tears by the death or but, potential death of Batman. But she was an alcoholic waste of space. Oh, Batman I was Batman. Batman, Batman <laughs> was just like a, a bourgeois, Batman pri- stood for some privileged guy who had everything <laughs> at his disposal. And honestly, crying like, like a joke. crying like a baby. And to this to this day, I'm still in my head. I I turn around and think, oh, everyone else is crying. Everyone else is crying. The only other film where I've cried as much as that was a more. <laughs> so it's Batman or a more. Yeah. Those are the two both, listeners. Both struck a chord with me, and yeah. that that rounds off my yeah. my memory. Well, not all of my memory. Puncture Paul's hard heart with either yeah. Batman, Batman or, or a more. Michael Haneke's yeah. essay on death. Yeah. Um, bringing this thing to a close, then I think you find it's an essay on love. But anyway, well, yeah, no, you're you're, you're very right. Um, Bringing this thing to a close, uh, I guess, I don't know if it's my number one experience or just one of the, the best experiences, but this is a film that we've talked about on the show, actually, and both of us have seen. Um, I remember really doggedly pursuing Paul to see this film because he hadn't caught up with it yet a, a number of episodes ago. It was a screening in what probably was 2010, nine or 10, um, of Enter the Void, the um, the provocative, let's say, uh, feature film follow-up to Irreversible from um, French provocateur Gaspar Noé. I saw this uh, film festival in Korea with some friends of mine. And, <laughs> I mean, if you've seen Enter the Void, I don't really need to explain this pick, but it was an experience in a film like very unusual or very unlike other experiences because of the way in which the director draws you into that film and we've kind of talked about this because the film opens up from the perspective of a guy who is essentially on a drug trip Mm. for the first what quarter or the first section anyway the first few sequences of that film and in the cinema it became I wasn't on any kind of stimulant I hadn't been drinking at all I hadn't you know done anything to that effect but it Probably kind of the best. yeah, but it kind of it gave me that feeling like I really was in the body of this individual mm. and experiencing the things that he was experiencing. And there, there is a moment in that film. I don't think it's really a spoiler. It happens in the first like fifteen minutes. But there's a, a moment where you're from. You followed in first person with this character, 
and he is in a desperate situation. He's locked into a corner and he's suddenly that you hear a gunshot and the bullet has hit the protagonist. And yes. I genuinely jumped and I genuinely held my body as if I had been shot. And I think there are many ways in which you can attack or criticise Gaspar Noé, and maybe that's for another podcast. But for a director to take me to a point where I felt like I had been shot, I think it's something that will never leave me, that I'll never forget. I mean, as additionally, the, the sequences in the film where there is a repetition of a car crash. Mm. Every time that car crash happened, I oh, felt the yeah. impact myself. And it was such kind of um, visceral and effective filmmaking that that's why I had to include it in this countdown really because I just can't forget that kind of experience in a cinema much like to round it off a Paul we're probably not going to forget our experience in watching a, a booming IMAX 3D rendition of mm. uh, Mad Max Fury Road or will we ever forget our experience of watching a complete shambles of a Raid 2 oh screening? my word yeah that'll be on the but other countdown be, that'll be on the, yes, yeah, yes. the the Raid 2 Berendal yes. thing I haven't, met, I haven't managed to face the Raid 2 since actually no since, I want to rewatch no. it but I can't relive those no. dark moments no, I can't the relive theater. the film restarting four times any, um, anyhow, yeah, I guess that kind of rounds us off for today, Paul. Um, bring this thing into harbour. Well, that does that does round us off for today. Um, uh, just a, a, a quick point. I am been cordially invited to a, a screening night tomorrow night of the University of Gloucestershire's film students uh, exhibition of their final. We're films talking hashtag U of G, yeah, U of yeah, G, hashtag U of G. Um, so look out for a write-up from that. If any any notable films, we'll have we'll have a chat about next time round. And if I can jump in there, Paul, uh, exciting news coming up for the next podcast or maybe the subsequent podcast. We now have review copies of both T for Two and The Prey. These, if you are avid followers of the podcast, will know are the two short films that we featured in terms of reviewing the filmmakers on the last two episodes. That's fifteen and sixteen of mm. this show. Or um, interviewing, perhaps, rather than reviewing. Excuse me, yeah, I've used completely the wrong word. Yeah, interviewing the film. Here's our review of James Webber. Yeah, James Webber, <laughs> lovely chat, some great opinions, uh, very well-versed in, in the world in which he works. Yeah, um, Mark and Carl, uh, amenable. They're right. Friendly yeah. guys, nice yeah, hosts. You know, uh, don't, don't feed me homemade rum again. I mean, that's what I'd say in review of those guys. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that means that we can follow up both online on the website and on the podcast with coverage of and review reviews of in fact used correctly this reviews, time reviews reviews of, us of those two films <laughs> uh, believe it or not yes. so we're really pleased to follow through on those look out for those in subsequent shows and, and website stuff but in terms of today's show I think that wraps us up remember as always you can get involved with the conversation talk to us via Facebook Strangers in a Cinema we're at Twitter our handle is at Strangers Cinema the email address strangersinacinema at gmail.com you can find all of this business via the Facebook page anyway and most importantly via the site which is strangersinacinema.com all our contacts on there all of these episodes are archived on SoundCloud and I've added actually um, all of the other social media contacts on there so if you find the episode you'll find the website you'll find all of our blogging and stuff like that um paul last words from you for today bye 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 <laughs> see you on the next one you guys have a good time until then out <laughs> <laughs>